Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This is the life of author, activist, and lecturer Helen Keller. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you like the show, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it helps us keep the show going. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Don't forget to subscribe because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You've probably heard the name Helen Keller. And know that she was blind and deaf. And you likely even associate her with overcoming those disabilities. Maybe you've seen the play The Miracle Worker. Or watched one of its adaptations for the big or small screen. It's truly a remarkable story, but behind the icon was a flesh-and-blood woman who lived a very human life. Yes, she became an educator, an activist, and the most famous blind deaf person in the world. But she was not just a symbol. Her life was filled with triumph and tragedy. Let's start with a little taste of that triumph. When Helen Keller was just seven years old, she met with President Grover Cleveland. Not much is known about this meeting, which makes us wonder if she was merely a curiosity for Cleveland to see, a sightless deaf girl who had just begun her education. Even less is known about her meeting with the next president, William McKinley. But by the time Helen Keller met her third president, Theodore Roosevelt, she had already established her reputation. She'd written her book, The Story of My Life, and the leader of the free world wanted to honor this extraordinary woman. In fact, Roosevelt wrote a letter to Helen in which he said, I am so glad I met you. I shall always remember your call at the White House. That meeting was in 1903, and as the century unfolded, every subsequent president also met with Helen Keller. William Howard Taft, Woodrow Wilson, Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Harry Truman, 
Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson. In all, Helen Keller met with 13 presidents in a row, every single one from Grover Cleveland to Lyndon Johnson. And many worked with her on advocacy issues. When William Taft opened a lighthouse for the blind, Helen was there for the ribbon-cutting ceremony. Calvin Coolidge and his wife became lifelong friends with Helen, and she complimented him on letters he had written on behalf of the American Foundation for the Blind. Herbert Hoover worked for the Foundation for the Overseas Blind, and Helen thanked him for his contribution. Dwight Eisenhower, another friend, sent her a letter on her 75th birthday in which he stated, The story of your accomplishments is not only a monument to your own great gifts of mind and heart, it is also an enduring inspiration in many lands to those who suffer physical handicaps and to those who seek to help the disabled toward richer lives. Helen's final meeting with a president, with Lyndon Johnson in 1964, was the ultimate tribute, because Johnson gave Helen the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest honor in the United States that can be bestowed on a civilian. That came when Helen was 84 years old, after a lifetime of achievement. But before she could get there, we have to go back to the previous century, to where it all began in Alabama in 1880. Helen Keller was born on June 27, 1880, in Tuscumbia, Alabama. It was the post-Civil War South. The Keller family lived on a homestead called Ivy Green. Helen's father, Arthur Keller, was called the captain because he had been a captain in the Confederate Army. His mother, Helen's grandmother, was the second cousin of Robert E. Lee. Arthur was the editor of the local paper, The North Alabamian, and a gentleman farmer. He was also very much a man of the time and of the South. Like many Southern landholding and former slaveholding whites, he had lost much of the family wealth between 1860 and 1880. But he still considered himself part of the deserving upper-class elite. This meant keeping up the lifestyle as much as possible. This also meant that he had black servants working for him, both emancipated slaves and their descendants. And although he was always cordial with them, he did not treat them as equals. Helen's mother, Kate, also had strong ties to the Confederacy. Her father, Charles Adams, though originally from Massachusetts, fought for the South in the Civil War. He rose to the rank of Brigadier General. Kate Adams was a Southern belle, pampered and protected by her father. She was a tall, statuesque blonde with blue eyes and a smooth complexion. Kate was Arthur Keller's second wife, and he was 20 years older than her. He had two children, James and William, from his first marriage. His first wife died in 1877 when she was 38. A little over a year later, in July of 1878, he married Kate. At the time, Arthur was 42 and Kate was 21. The marriage was hard for Kate because her husband was struggling to make ends meet. No respectable Southern gentleman at that time wanted his wife to have a job outside the home, and yet Kate was working just as hard on the farm. Rising at dawn, Kate grew her own vegetables and fruit and raised livestock. It was also difficult emotionally because Kate soon realized she and her husband had little in common. Kate spent many hours working away at her garden and it was not uncommon for her to go days saying little or nothing to her husband. Helen was Kate's first child and surely seen as a gift by her mother who doted on her. Kate chose the name Helen because it means shining light, and she hoped her daughter's life would be bright and not dreary. 
Captain Keller preferred the name Mildred after a family ancestor, but his wife prevailed. Helen Keller was born with the ability to see and hear, and she was a precocious child. By the time she was six months old, she was speaking. She would say howdy and TTT. She also knew the meaning of water, which she pronounced wawa. Helen had excellent vision, and she could spot needles or buttons on the floor that no one else in the family could find. In short, it was the beginning of an idyllic childhood. But sadly, it wouldn't last. In February of 1882, when Helen Keller was 19 months old, she caught an illness that the doctors called an acute congestion of the stomach and the brain. Modern speculation is that it may have been either scarlet fever or meningitis. At first, the doctors thought the illness would kill her. But Helen was a fighter, and after days where the situation was precarious, her fever subsided and she survived. Helen's mother Kate was filled with joy and relief. It wasn't until later that she realized that Helen no longer responded to the ringing of the dinner bell. And as she saw that Helen's eyes did not close when she passed her hand in front of them. It soon became clear. The illness had rendered Helen blind and deaf. Helen confided later that she had no recollection of being able to see or hear, but it's still difficult to imagine the trauma she underwent. One moment your senses are picking up the vibrant sights and sounds of life. Now close your eyes and imagine being plunged into a silent world of total darkness. That was only three seconds. And you knew you could open your eyes at any point. Now, imagine those three seconds stretched out over hours, days, weeks, years, a lifetime. And you already know what words are and how to describe your world. What if you had none of that language? You might touch the bark of a tree and not know that it was called a tree, or taste a cool glass of milk and not know it was called milk or a glass. This is only a small inkling of what it was like to be young Helen Keller. Not surprisingly, the early years of Helen Keller's life did not go well. Helen was prone to outbursts. She threw temper tantrums, punching, slapping, hitting, and biting. All of this is common behavior for deaf-blind children. And because her family felt very sorry for her, they didn't have the heart to discipline her. This led to more rude behavior. She grabbed food off of other people's plates, and she smashed dishes and lamps. Much of that acting out was born of her frustration that she was unable to express herself. One time she ran into the parlor and pinched her grandmother so hard that the poor woman was forced to leave the room. But that was not the only side to young Helen. She still possessed the senses of touch and smell. So, by the age of five, she could sort and fold laundry, being able to distinguish her clothes from others. She also developed a system of signs to communicate with her family. By the time she was seven, she had about 60 homemade signs to communicate various things. For example, if she wanted her mother to make ice cream, she imitated the motion of the freezer and shivered as if cold. She had a special connection with Martha Washington, the six-year-old daughter of the family cook. Martha could often interpret what Helen was trying to say. Still, Helen's outbursts only grew worse over time. There were members of the family who thought she was a monster and needed to be institutionalized. Helen's mother, Kate, was adamant about not sending her daughter away. But even she realized the situation could not continue for the safety of Helen and those around her. 
but there was some good news. In July of 1885, Arthur was appointed U.S. Marshal for the Northern District of Alabama. This gave the family a much-needed infusion of cash. And in 1886, Kate had a second daughter. Well, this time, the captain got his way, and they named the child Mildred. Mildred was five years younger than Helen, and one day, a jealous Helen flipped over the baby's cradle. Fortunately, Kate was there to catch Mildred. Otherwise, she could have been seriously hurt. Another time, Helen was holding her wet apron in front of the fire to dry it off, and the apron caught on fire. Well, this time, Helen's nurse was there, and she was able to throw a blanket over the fire to snuff it out. In searching for a way to handle Helen, Kate considered the case of Laura Bridgman. Charles Dickens wrote about her in his book American Notes, which Kate had read. Laura Bridgman was a woman who had lost her sight and hearing when she was two years old, but still became educated. Kate sent her husband, along with young Helen, to Baltimore to visit an ear, eye, and throat specialist, J. Julian Chisholm. Chisholm referred them to Alexander Graham Bell. The Alexander Graham Bell? Yes, the inventor of the telephone. Bell got his patent on the telephone 10 years earlier, and at this point in his career, 1886, he was working with deaf children. He recommended that the Kellers contact the school in Boston where Laura Bridgman had been educated, the Perkins Institution for the Blind. Helen's father then wrote a letter to the director of the school, Michael Anagnos, asking for them to send an instructor to teach his daughter. Anagnos chose a 20-year-old graduate of the school, Annie Sullivan. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, let's continue our story. Annie Sullivan became a seminal part of Helen Keller's story. But at this point, she was still a young woman wondering if she was in over her head. Annie was one of five children born to Irish immigrants in Massachusetts. The family lived in extreme poverty, and it only got worse after Annie's mother died when Annie was just eight years old. Two years later, 10-year-old Annie was abandoned by her alcoholic father and went to live in the poorhouse with her five-year-old brother, Jimmy. It was a harrowing existence. The house was home to the sick and infirm, prostitutes and predators, rats and cockroaches, infection and disease. All Annie had was her little brother, Jimmy. And then, not even him. Jimmy died of tuberculosis only three months after they were sent to the poorhouse. It seems like more heartbreak than one person could handle, but Annie Sullivan persevered. She spent the next four years at that place and later eloquently described herself as a small incidental figure in the great canvas of human misery. Annie had her own physical limitations. She suffered from trachoma, an eye disease that made her nearly blind. In the summer of 1880, an inspection team came to the poorhouse because they had heard reports of malfeasance. Annie seized the opportunity to run in front of the investigators and shout, I want to go to school. The bold declaration paid off. In October of 1880, when Annie Sullivan was 14 and Helen Keller was just a few months old, Annie was sent to the Perkins School for the Blind, still known at the time as the Perkins Institution for the Blind. You might think going to school was salvation for Annie, but ironically, she soon wished she was back at the poorhouse. At Perkins, she felt adrift because the students were so straight-laced. 
She missed the excitement of the stories she heard from the prostitutes and other characters at her old home. She also felt out of place because her clothing was drab and the other girls made fun of her mistakes and picked on her because she was Irish. But eventually she found her way, learning how to spell with the manual alphabet and how to read Braille. She also had a couple of eye operations while she was at Perkins that improved her vision to the point where she could read for short periods of time. Annie attended Perkins for six years and in 1886 graduated as class valedictorian. 1886 is also the year that the director of the Perkins School, Michael Anagnos, received the letter from Arthur Keller asking for a teacher for his daughter, Helen. Anagnos decided that this would be Annie Sullivan's assignment. In March of 1887, 20-year-old Annie Sullivan arrived in Tuscumbia, Alabama to meet her pupil, six-year-old Helen Keller. Little did they know that this relationship would last for the next 49 years. Annie wasn't sure she would last 49 days. There was the culture shock of arriving in the South, and although she had been warned by friends not to discuss the Civil War, that only lasted until Captain Keller's brother, Uncle Frank, showed up from Knoxville. Annie later said Uncle Frank, whose sons had died fighting for the Confederacy, was as argumentative, aggressive, and vindictive as I was. This led to a shouting match. Naturally, Captain Keller took his brother's side and told Annie that her strong opinions constituted an outrageous display of prejudice and ignorance. Annie was also concerned because she had never worked as a teacher before. Although she had spent months at the Perkins School preparing for this job, she had never had a student or tried any of her methods. And then there was Helen Keller herself. If Annie had to describe her six-year-old pupil in a word, it would be spoiled. The Kellers had organized their life around making sure Helen was happy. So they put up with her outbursts and her bad habits, like grabbing food off of people's plates. Annie Sullivan was determined to break that down. And what resulted, at least at first, was a battle of wills. Helen resisted the changes to her routine, acting out with frustration because she did not understand what this new person in her life was doing. It started at the first breakfast when Annie refused to let Helen grab food off her plate. When Helen behaved badly and tried to unseat Annie, Annie sent the Kellers out of the room so she could focus on getting her new student to behave. What followed was two people, both stubborn and uncompromising, squaring off and it soon got physical. Helen pinched Annie, and Annie slapped back. Eventually, Annie got Helen to use her spoon to eat. The next battle was over the folding of the napkin. Well, this started another tussle. Helen tried to leave the room, and finding the door locked, she threw another fit. It took an hour, but eventually, Annie got Helen to fold her napkin. It was a small victory. Later, Annie wrote that after the encounter, she went up to her room, threw herself on the bed, exhausted, had a good cry, and felt better. Annie communicated with Helen by spelling out words into her hand. For example, when she gave Helen a doll as a gift, she used her fingers to spell out the word D-O-L-L. There is a photograph that was discovered in 2008, which shows Helen Keller with Annie Sullivan and a doll. The photo was taken in 1888, a year after Annie started teaching Helen. Helen is sitting elegantly in a Victorian dress while Annie sits behind her watching. 
But a year earlier, the scene was not quite so peaceful. When Annie gave Helen a mug and spelled the letters M-U-G, an irritated Helen tossed the mug on the floor. Annie decided that to get Helen to learn, she needed to separate Helen from her family and make Helen dependent on her. So Annie played a little trick on Helen and pretended to take her on a long trip. When, really, they were just circling around and returning to the cottage in the back of the Keller's house. It was here where Annie redoubled her efforts. The goal was to get Helen to connect the words Annie was spelling with the objects they represented. The breakthrough came after a month. As Annie ran water from a pump over Helen's hand. Helen realized that the motions Annie was making in her other hand, the letters she was spelling out, symbolized the idea of water. Helen Keller learned her first word that day, water. Helen was so excited that she demanded Annie teach her the words for other objects. Annie quickly began spelling them out. Ground, pump, trellis, and for herself, teacher. Helen Keller learned 29 more words that day. What happened at the water pump is the iconic scene of the play and the movie, The Miracle Worker. The play was written by William Gibson. It premiered on Broadway in 1959, starring Patty Duke as Helen Keller and Anne Bancroft as Annie Sullivan. Both actresses kept the same roles in the movie, which was released in 1962, and both of them won Academy Awards. Patty Duke for Best Supporting Actress and Anne Bancroft for Best Actress. All of which is to say, here was perhaps the greatest triumph of Helen Keller's life. The moment that would be remembered and become fixed in the public's consciousness. But she was still only six years old. There would be a whole life for her to lead. A life that would be filled with ups and downs, trials and tribulations. Not to belabor the point, but everything didn't stop when Helen Keller was six so she could take a victory lap for the next 80 years. The next step was expanding on Helen's education. In May of 1888, after being tutored by Annie for over a year, Helen moved to Boston to start attending the Perkins School for the Blind. Annie went with her. This had to have been difficult for Helen's mother, Kate. Yes, she wanted the best for her daughter and was happy that she was finally getting an education, but at the same time, not only was Helen moving away, but Annie was in many ways replacing Kate as a mother figure. Indeed, Annie was the dominant woman in Helen's life. Their lives were intertwined. That didn't make Kate care any less. She learned the manual finger alphabet to talk to Helen, but the geographic distance added up. Though Helen later said her southern childhood and family ties shaped her identity, she spent the remainder of her life in the Northeast. She came back to visit her mother and her family, and her mother came to visit her, but Annie, teacher, always came first. In 1888, Annie was Helen's primary teacher at the Perkins School. The learning was a painstaking process. Annie was at Helen's side, spelling out words into her hand. Helen did not understand all the words, but Annie's theory was that much like a regular child is surrounded by the language of adults speaking around her, she would immerse Helen in language through her hands. And so she spelled out everything for Helen verbatim. As Helen later recalled, if I did not know the words and idioms necessary to express my thoughts, she supplied them, even suggesting conversation when I was unable to keep up my end of the dialogue. 
This process literally continued for years, with Annie trying to supply as much stimulus as she could to Helen, answering her questions and trying to explain concepts and expressions. Helen said it was difficult at first to initiate, but gradually she was able to take part in the conversation. At the same time, Annie was also teaching Helen how to read and write. She gave Helen slips of cardboard which had printed words with raised letters. Helen touched the raised letters and learned how to spell the words. For writing, Helen wrote on a grooved board with a paper underneath. She wrote in block letters and the groove kept the letters in a straight line. Helen also learned Braille, which is a system of raised dots that can be read by the fingers. All these methods took lots of repetition, and then more repetition, and still more repetition, with Annie prodding and correcting as necessary. But eventually, Helen could read and write and engage with those around her. While Helen was at Perkins, there was friction between Annie and the Keller family, Captain Keller in particular. Captain Keller was having money trouble. He lost his job as a federal marshal in 1889 when the new administration took over, and he considered sending Helen on a tour to raise funds. This was a common practice at the time. There were vaudeville chains, which specialized in showing off everything from bearded ladies to the Siamese twins Chang and Eng. Annie always resisted. She didn't want Helen being paraded around like a freak, and she ultimately prevailed. It helped that she had the strong backing of Helen's mother, Kate, who also wanted her daughter to be protected. Through donations from wealthy patrons, Annie was able to finance Helen's education and her own salary as well as their living expenses. Helen and Annie had two prominent men on their side, Michael Anagnos and Alexander Graham Bell. Each had their own agenda. Anagnos spread the word about Helen's accomplishments, often exaggerating, and helped create the myth of a deaf-blind prodigy at his school. And Bell wanted to promote the teaching of speech to the deaf in the United States. It was often advantageous to have these powerful men as allies, but it could lead to trouble as well. On November 4, 1891, Helen sent Michael Anagnos a birthday present. It was a short story called The Frost King, about the King of Frost who lived in a beautiful palace up north that was in a land full of snow. Anagnos printed the story in the school's alumni magazine, and it was reprinted in a weekly publication in Virginia. But people noticed the story bore an uncanny resemblance to Margaret T. Canby's The Frost Fairies from her children's book Birdie and His Fairy Friends. And it turns out there was a copy of the book at a summer home that Helen had stayed at. The owner of the house remembered reading the book to Helen when Annie was away. Anagnos questioned Helen one-on-one. -on -one. Helen still thought she had come up with an original story, but Anagnos quickly sent out a note retracting the work as taken in whole or in part from the earlier publication. The episode highlighted the fact that Helen wasn't as far along in her education as the school trumpeted. Still, even with this blemish, Helen's story was so uplifting that she became popular. It was the dawn of the communication age, and newspapers and magazines had features on her. The publicity made her widely known not only in America, but around the world. Still, the tales often seemed to exaggerate her accomplishments. One who pushed back against all this publicity was Annie Sullivan herself. She said that too much had been written about Helen, and her only talent was, quote, being able to speak and write the language of her country with greater ease and fluency than the average seeing and hearing child of her age, end quote. 
that didn't stop people from honoring her. Helen Keller had already met her first president, Grover Cleveland. And in 1893, Alexander Graham Bell took her to the World's Columbian Fair in Chicago, where, unlike ordinary visitors, Helen was allowed to touch all the exhibits. Helen also had been pursuing another of Bell's passions, learning to speak. When she was nine, Helen found out about a deaf-blind mute girl in Norway who had learned how to speak. This became Helen's new goal. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now let's continue our story. Dreaming of speech, Helen took lessons with Sarah Fuller, principal of the Horace Mann School for the Deaf in Boston. Helen used her fingers to monitor how a person's lips moved when they made certain sounds. Still, it was slow going, and only Annie and Sarah could understand what she was saying. Ultimately, this was one of the great disappointments of Helen Keller's life. She never acquired normal speech. She was able to be understood by only her closest aides, but not by everyone. Another blow came in 1896, when Helen Keller's father, Arthur, died. In their nine years together, Annie Sullivan had noticed that Helen seemed detached from other people. But when she told Helen of Arthur's death, she realized she had misjudged Helen because her grief was profound. Helen wanted to return to Alabama for the funeral, but her mother forbade it. Perhaps Kate Keller felt she would be unable to handle Helen as she dealt with her own difficulties. In 1896, the year her father died, Helen Keller began attending the Cambridge School for Young Ladies. Helen was now 16 years old, and this was the first time she had gone to school with hearing, sighted girls her own age. Years later, she would write that it had been a great experience to, quote, join them in so many of their games, even blind man's bluff and frolics in the snow, end quote. However, since few people at the school knew the manual finger language, she was isolated and as dependent on Annie Sullivan as ever. Helen also continued to meet famous and influential people. One was the writer Mark Twain, who was very impressed with her. How impressed? Twain once said, quote, Helen Keller is fellow to Caesar, Alexander, Napoleon, Homer, Shakespeare, and the rest of the immortals. She will be as famous a thousand years from now as she is today. In fact, it was Mark Twain who gave Annie Sullivan the nickname The Miracle Worker that would become the title of the famous play and movie. Twain was determined that no opportunity be denied to Helen Keller. Twain learned that Helen wanted to attend college, and although Twain himself was having money trouble, he still had many wealthy friends. One of those friends was a Standard Oil executive, Henry H. Rogers. Twain introduced Helen Keller to Rogers, and Rogers was immediately won over by Helen's drive and talent. He agreed to pay for Helen to attend Radcliffe College, the sister school to Harvard. Helen went to classes, accompanied by Annie Sullivan, who could interpret lectures and texts for her. By this point, Helen could communicate in many ways through touch lip reading, braille, typing, and fingerspelling. She could also speak in a way Annie could understand. It should be pointed out that the administrators at Radcliffe were suspicious of Annie Sullivan. When Helen took tests at college, Annie was banned from the room. Ostensibly, it was to make sure Helen knew the material on her own, but it was also the prejudiced school administrator's way of putting Annie in her place. There were those in power who didn't believe a poor Irish woman like Annie belonged at Radcliffe. 
At least one official joked that by accepting Helen, they had really accepted Annie. The implication being that Annie had snuck in on the coattails of Helen and was getting the benefit of an education she didn't deserve. While Helen was at Radcliffe, she met an instructor at Harvard named John Macy. The 25-year-old Macy quickly learned the manual alphabet, and he worked with Helen directly to edit a manuscript. In 1901, as a 21-year-old college student, Helen Keller published her first book, The Story of My Life. The book was not that successful, at least not at first. It sold only 10,000 copies over the first two years and was not the bestseller the publisher anticipated. However, the book remained in print and is now regarded as a classic. In 1996, it was named one of the 100 most important books of the 20th century by the New York Public Library. After the publication of the book, Helen continued her college studies. In 1904, at the age of 24, Helen Keller graduated cum laude with honors from Radcliffe College. She was the first deaf-blind student to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree. Shortly before Helen's graduation, Annie Sullivan's relationship with John Macy became romantic. At age 38, she was having a passionate love affair with a man 11 years younger, but the age gap proved no obstacle. A year later, in 1905, Annie and John got married, and Helen Keller went to live with the Macy's in Rentham, Massachusetts. Although both Annie and John were devoted to Helen, there was always an underlying tension because Annie put Helen first. As the years passed, this tension surfaced and John and Annie separated, though they never divorced. But before John Macy disappeared from their lives, he instilled in Helen a passion for social activism. Helen officially became a member of the Socialist Party in 1909. She adopted the party's ideals and wrote several articles about socialism. She also supported Eugene Debs, the Socialist Party presidential candidate. As she began working for socialist causes, Helen Keller received the first negative feedback of her career. Up to this point, the press had been overwhelmingly positive, praising her courage and intelligence. But when she expressed her socialist views, not only did they attack her positions, they attacked her disabilities. You might say it was the trolling of the day. One newspaper, the Brooklyn Eagle, even wrote that her, quote, mistakes spring out of the manifest limitations of her development. Helen also faced a backlash from her own family, specifically her mother, Kate. Helen wrote of her mother, after my mind had taken a radical turn, she could never get over the feeling that we had drifted apart. One example of this was when Helen labeled as shameful the South's racial ideologies and practices. Although Kate never said so specifically, Helen felt that her mother's dream of a happy family was satisfied through her two younger children, Mildred and a son, Phillips. Helen felt that her mother viewed her handicaps as a tragedy that had ruined the Keller family. By the time of World War I, Helen's sister Mildred had married, and Kate spent time with Mildred and her husband in Montgomery, Alabama, as well as occasionally visiting Helen and Annie up north. Meanwhile, Helen was busy making public appearances across the country. Because her story had been widely shared in the media and through her own book, Helen was a well-known celebrity. She gave lectures, sharing her experiences and working on behalf of others with disabilities. Annie Sullivan's health began failing around 1914. A young woman from Scotland, Polly Thompson, was hired to keep house. 
Although Thompson had no experience working with deaf or blind people, she progressed to working as a secretary of Helen Keller and eventually would become her constant companion. In time, Polly's talking fingers could spell out 85 words a minute into Helen's hands. Helen kept up her busy schedule. In 1915, along with city planner George Kessler, she co-founded Helen Keller International to combat the causes and consequences of blindness and malnutrition. Helen became a member of the American Federation of the Blind in 1924, and she participated in their campaigns to raise awareness, money, and support for the cause. She also joined the Permanent Blind War Relief Fund, later called the American Braille Press, to help those less fortunate. But not all of Helen Keller's activism was on behalf of the blind and disabled. Helen also worked on social and political issues, including women's suffrage, pacifism, and birth control. In 1920, Helen Keller helped found the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. The nonpartisan, nonprofit organization has the stated mission to defend and preserve the individual rights and liberties guaranteed to every person in this country by the Constitution and laws of the United States. But the ACLU's early focus was on free speech, particularly for anti-war protesters. This may have been an unpopular position, but Helen Keller was not afraid to take an unpopular position, a lesson she had learned during her work with the socialists. Then tragedy struck. Two hours before Helen and Annie Sullivan Macy were to appear on stage in Los Angeles in November of 1921, Helen received a telegram from her sister Mildred informing her that their mother had died. It was another blow to Helen and a reminder at the age of 41 that the cost of getting older would be losing those she loved. A little over a decade later, Helen suffered another great loss. On October 20th, 1936, Annie Sullivan died at age 70 with Helen Keller holding her hand. She had gone into a coma as a result of coronary thrombosis. Helen still reverently called Annie teacher, though she was now 56. Helen was overcome with grief, and she feared she could not survive without the woman who had been by her side for nearly half a century. And yet, there was still work to do. And what better tribute could Helen give to Annie, the woman had taught her to make a little progress each day, than to continue on? She persevered on. There were more speeches to give and people to inspire. In 1946, Helen Keller was appointed Counselor of International Relations for the American Foundation of Overseas Blind. Between 1946 and 1957, she traveled to 35 countries on five continents. This included her longest trip ever, in 1955, where Helen Keller, then 75, spent five months traveling 40,000 miles through Asia. Helen relished the success of these trips because she knew her time was winding down. In 1960, after 46 years by her side, Polly Thompson passed away at the age of 75. And then in 1961, Helen herself suffered a series of strokes. She spent her remaining years at her Connecticut home. If Helen Keller had been asked for the greatest disappointment of her life, it wasn't that she couldn't see or hear. Rather, it was that she never was allowed to marry. In the Victorian era in which Helen grew up, it was expected that a severely handicapped woman, even one as remarkable as Helen, would remain chaste. 
Helen's mother, Kate, strictly forbade her from having any interaction with boys her own age and would have been aghast at the thought of Helen becoming sexually active. Well, that doesn't change the fact that Helen once said, if I could see, I would marry, first of all. It's a shame that this was one dream that Helen could not achieve. Helen Keller died on June 1st, 1968, at the age of 87, only a few weeks shy of her 88th birthday. She was cremated, and her ashes were buried at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., next to the remains of Annie Sullivan and Polly Thompson. At the time of her death, Helen Keller was already an icon. She had received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Lyndon Johnson four years earlier, and people throughout the world were familiar with her decades of work on behalf of the blind and the disabled. People were also familiar with the depiction of her life in The Miracle Worker, which had been released six years before. There were more productions of The Miracle Worker. One of particular note was a 1979 TV movie in which Patty Duke, who played Helen Keller in the original production, now played Annie Sullivan. The performance was top-rate, and Duke won a Primetime Emmy Award. The accolades continued after Helen's passing. The state of Pennsylvania celebrates Helen Keller Day on June 27th, her birth date. On the federal level, President Jimmy Carter signed a proclamation recognizing the day in 1980, on the 100th anniversary of Helen's birth. On that same day, a stamp was issued depicting Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan. In 1999, Helen Keller was listed among Gallup's most widely admired people of the 20th century. The Helen Keller Hospital in Sheffield, Alabama, is dedicated to her. There are streets named for Helen Keller around the world, including in France, Spain, Portugal, Israel, Switzerland, and, of course, the United States. And in 2003, Alabama honored its native daughter by depicting her on the state quarter. It's the only coin circulating in the U.S. to feature Braille. But even with all this positive recognition, there is still some negative. That's right. If you Google the name Helen Keller on the first page of results, you are likely to find a joke Twitter account which purports to be recording the observations of Helen because she can't see or hear. Haha. <laughs> Get it? Uh, yeah. Well, in light of all we've learned, it doesn't seem very funny. No, it does not. But I hope the people who are behind that feed realize that Helen Keller was not only the most famous blind and deaf person of all time, she was a real human being. Who overcame long odds to succeed as a student, as an author, and as an activist. Who lived a life of strength, dignity, and character. And who is an inspiration to all who face daunting challenges no matter how high the obstacle or how difficult the adversity. And that is no joke. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode comes out every Wednesday, so don't forget to subscribe to Historical Figures on Apple Podcasts. Tune in Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network. As always, we thank you for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Stephen DeLello and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>